everybody. This is Barb Harvey with Let's Talk Parenting. We are talking again to Kathleen Leos, who is the founder of the Education Neuroscience Foundation. And she's going to be talking with us this time in our part three series on the brain about the adolescent brain. So uh, Kathleen, please tell us a little bit about the foundation and then I'm going to give you my first question now. What are the differences between the child brain and the adolescent brain and why are they, what are the, the parameters that parents need to think about when they're thinking about their children going into adolescence? Well, good afternoon, everyone, and hello, Barbara, and thank you so much for um, asking me to return as a guest on your podcast. I, it's been really exciting for me and for us. Um, just briefly about the Education Neuroscience Foundation, we opened the foundation in 2014 based on 20 years' worth of work working with um, education neuroscientists in the field, um, funding their work and funding uh, part of it through the U.S. Department of Ed in my former role, and also developing relationships with the neuroscientists to figure out um, exactly how does the brain access information, process the information, acquire knowledge, and then apply it in the real world. And the discoveries since 2005 have been extraordinary, so it's very exciting um, for me to be here today to share with parents, because um, I think parents are the most important teachers of our children. Um, and the most consistent much and of, the longest lasting. <laughs> exactly. It never ends, folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's but, the <laughs> but also um, to share the information and, and then, um, you know, talk about things that can be done you know, for parents to be aware of and things that they can do at home in the community and then, you know, helping out in school regardless of the age of your child. Um, and I say child affectionately because in my world, um, children are basically, I'd say, probably pre-birth to 40. Um, <laughs> I mean, 40, 40 years old, not 40. Oh, I love it. It's so accurate. It's just so um, accurate. Okay. Because we're always learning together, and the brain changes all the time over time, which leads me into the first question. Um, there is a difference between the young, you know, early childhood brain, and, and oftentimes you're going to hear um, early childhood is 0 to 3, 0 to 5, 0 to 8, and we'd like to sort of extend that concept to 11 or 12. That's really the span of time, the age range for, quote, early childhood, because the brain is in a very um, productive, thirsty developmental stage, which with the onset of puberty, which we know can happen anywhere from 9, 11, 12, but right during that time period, the brain begins to change. And what our experts tell us is it moves into phase two. And what does that mean? It means that the hormones are going absolutely wild, as we all know, especially if you have or have had teenagers in your life. <laughs> but 
the brain is changing at the same time, not only related to the hormonal activity, but it's entering a new phase of development. And what that means is that um, areas of the brain where neurons had been connected for, you know, quite some time are beginning to kind of drop away. They call the process pruning. And new neural structures um, and connections are forming. And so we're moving into a phase where uh, the individual, the, you know, the adolescent is not only dealing with hormones, but also dealing with the fact that their brain is changing at the same time. And I think that's important for parents to understand because parents, as a parent myself, parents, we're always dealing on the outside of a kid brain reacting to situations not always understanding that there's a lot of different, very complex things going on inside that little creature. (laughs) um, So, you know, we see where, where they appear to be and act out and oftentimes are, quote, out of control. And I don't mean that, you know, they're doing really disruptive behavior, but they're feeling out of control because things are changing so rapidly internally. And what they're asking us to do is kind of keep that structure around them so that they have a wider range and a bigger box within which to wander around but not get themselves into trouble. Um, and so they, what I hear from you... So- I wrote an article several years ago, I shared this with you, called Twos and Teens, Same Stage, Different Age. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that looks like? Because I think a lot of times parents don't realize that that their kids are repeating a stage. You know, that's such a perfect way to put it too, Barbara, because... If the twos are 12, the threes are 13, the fours are 14, the fives are 15, it is a repetition. It's just that they're older and they feel like they're pushing harder for independence because you, starting with a two-year-old, you can see that they're moving away from mom and they're starting to explore and they're making family relationships, you know, and they're, they're broadening their world within a restrictive environment within the environment of the home or, say, the um, child care center, you know, but it's a small environment. You get to the 12s, 13s, 14s, and they're doing exactly the same thing. They're broadening their world through relationships. You see that much more dependent on their peer relationships, and they're pushing the parameters of their world to engage in a broader world. So they're more out in the community, involved in sports, after-school activities, um, exploring like crazy because their brains are really hungry and thirsty for more knowledge. And they're also pushing away from the, quote, structure of the home, you know, and parents, a more, quote, traditional interaction between parent and child, pushing against those controls because they're testing out their own decision-making process. And okay, so I want to stop you there for a second because I think this is really important. And um, I think parents really need, I think a lot of parents treat their teenagers like they're still children and they still need direction. 
And I really feel like one of my most popular classes is um, parenting and mentoring teens because I really feel like although kids need that structure, they also need their parent to be more of a mentor in, 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 in a mentor I should say also in a mentor role. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly a wonderful approach for a parent to take. It's you're not in control of their decision-making process, say, the way you were when they were two, three, four, you know, through the early childhood up to 10 or 12. Now you're actually giving that process over to them, but you're not going away. And that's what I tell parents all the time. The harder they push against you to, you know, leave me alone, go away, um, you say, well, no, but I'm here. You know, you're, you're not controlling their decisions, but you're mentoring. It's that role modeling, mentoring, um, you know, and I caution parents, too. You're, you're not their best friend. You're right. not there to be their friend, but you're there as a guide because you have all that experience and knowledge. And, and I think what becomes extremely important as that relationship changes is the communication process. Oftentimes, as we've noted, and this goes on because the brains are so busy, they're so active, that oftentimes our adolescent gets quiet, is more silent, is more internal, maybe not with their friends, but with the parent. And so it's a question of listening harder and picking up on different cues and just being there to offer suggestions um, and, and really listening. Uh, I have parents come to me often and say, you know, kids are pushing really hard against their parents to, quote, go away. And what I tell them is the harder they push for you to go away is the more you need to stay visible. I'm not saying stay controlling, but stay visible, that you are their anchor. And, and let me get to the important part of the brain development, what's going on, because there are certain things that, that really help support this phase, phase two of brain development. And that's for uh, the student or the child's world to stay consistent as much as possible, stable, and predictable because you're, those are the parameters I'm talking as they push out you know, to engage in the world. They want to still know that things are predictable for them, you know, that things are still stable for them, um, and that they remain consistent. So they can count on, say, the truthfulness in your relationship, that they know that that's a consistency. That's a stability. You know, the world may be sending them up tons of mixed messages and lots of things that, as parents, we don't want them to be involved with. Um, and they know they can rely on you. They can rely on uh, that you will be there and that you're not going to push them away sometimes as much as you feel like, oh, my God, <laughs> do I really want to? But, but what I, the reason I'm talking about the behaviors is because they are, the behaviors are actually stemming from new neurological connections. 
this is what's coming out of the the development of the brain itself. They're they're expanding and they're developing the phase two of the framework of the learning framework. Um, and and this part is is really important in that relationship. It is a mentorship role. It's also a parent role. And believe me. Um, Finding the balance is very, very challenging <laughs> as parents, which is why I think groups and things like what you're offering, Barbara, is really important for parents because you, you need to have a place to go yourself to understand what is going on with my child. Um, how do I respond in certain situations? And I think, you know, others giving feedback from, from a knowledgeable place really does help groups of parents in relation to groups of children. And I agree with that. And one of the things I tell parents all the time, uh, whenever we're, whenever I'm in a class, I always say this, your best ally in raising your child is another parent <laughs> who's going through the same thing you are that you can yes. call and say, help, what did you do here? Or are you dealing with this? Or, you know, even if you, you know, get two or three couples and you get together a couple of times, you know, a quarter and just talk about what you're seeing with your kids and kind of give each other ideas and, you know, be that bounce off person um, for one another. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it just, you can't, you know, I don't believe it takes a village to raise a child. that, that, That has always bugged me. Um, yeah, because I think it's two committed parents with support it takes to raise a child. Um, yes, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of picky that way. Um, well, and and even extended family. I, I, I apologize for interrupting, but no, go. Um, you know, even extended family, whether it's aunts, uncles, other siblings, grandparents. Um, you know, where there's positive influence, the role modeling, the mentoring, that listening capacity, you know, where the adolescent um, teenager, you know, just they may have a, a really burning issue and something that needs to be solved, and they're intimidated. They don't necessarily want to share everything with their parent for whatever reason. Um, but they're willing to maybe share with a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, um, you know, or someone who's an additional adult that's been significant in their life. So building that trust is really important. And that trust in the relationship is based on the interaction, not only the brain interaction for development for learning, but the brain interaction for the development for operating in the world because it's, it is based on those relationships. In fact, I will give you um, a wonderful quote based on Dr. Pat, Patricia Kuhl's research, neuroscientist at the University of Washington. All learning, all learning is uh, developed through the social emotional experience of the brain. Wow. Social emotional development is the gateway to learning. And that that is all about the brain development. Um, the work is wonderful because it really takes us into the crisis that we're facing. And I know we're kind of flipping over uh, to a different area a little bit here. 
But what is happening with, you know, quote, the pandemic and forcing this group of students and children to only be able to learn online, which is a disaster for the kids when it comes to their brain development. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit if you want, because so many parents, Well, and so many parents are struggling with this and struggling with the decision. Do I send my child back into school, into a learning environment where there are other kids involved? You know, what if my school only opens for online learning and distance learning and is my child really learning and and how do I enhance, augment, support uh, a process that is not beneficial to learning and the brain? And, and I really feel for parents and educators, um, principals, superintendents, et cetera, because, you know, what what they're forced to c- contend with is this um, situation where, okay, over the past several months, we've not been allowed to have our children engage with other children for, for the right health. I mean, I understand that, right. that part. But here we are, and it's September going into October. Kids typically have been, you know, gone back to school, and they're beginning to get involved with their friends, et cetera. And this particular age group absolutely needs face-to-face, in-person social interaction in classrooms with teachers, with peers, with, um, you know, colleagues that mean like counselors, et cetera, in the school in order to continue the learning process. So what do you do when you have to, you know, have a more restrictive environment, whether it's masks or the social distancing? Because as a parent, what we have to figure out in our own lives, yes, we want our kids to be safe. At the same time, how do we find the balance? And I think that's the key question that people are struggling with say, through Christmas this year. How do we find the balance? Well, Um, so here's one of the things that somebody recommended, and I thought, well, what a great idea, is she reached out to several uh, kids in her neighborhood. mm -hmm. um, So she has a large basement where she did homeschooling for several years. Um, Right. And so what she's doing is in that, in that spirit, she's got 10 teenagers who are social distanced, but they're all watching, the, they're all in the same grade, and they're all watching together. And then she has, um, as, as they watch, she's kind of um, in the background doing her own work. But she'll take a break every now and then and then get the kid to kind of talk about it, to kind of understand it, to kind of, you know, kind of get. So she's, since she, she worked from home, she owns her own business. So she, would, she had that luxury of doing that for her teenagers. And she's saying that she's seeing the whole group kind of grow, you know. That yeah, it's a great idea. Time. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Maybe that's something and, other and, parents could figure out how to make how to manage. And if they can't, um, you know, we have a lot of parents that, you know, they can't stay home or they 
I know parents are really struggling with different ways of how to address the issue. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, every parent, regardless of economic background, regardless of any other factors going on, what I would say is um, within the restrictions, social distancing and mask, find the least restrictive environment. So if your child is participating at school, say your school has opened up and they're going to school with a mask and they're social distancing, because the district has to take all that into consideration. So they're setting up a safe environment for your child. Mm-hmm. And then um, if it's part-time, two days at school, three days at home, or as you said, in say a group setting, um, like if there's an after-school program that has said, you know what, during this time we're going to extend our hours and your kids, like uh, Girls and Boys Club, you know, where they can come and, and we will do exactly what that parent was doing in her basement. Right. You know, we will do the same thing for 10 kids in this room and 10 kids over here. And then we'll take breaks and in between, you know, we'll take a walk outside or we'll run or we'll, um, you know, we'll provide some kind of additional activity right. or series of activities. So it's not easy. No. And, and I really feel for parents um, and families who are in internet restricted environments where they don't have access that that's an an area that needs a lot of attention because um, there are really thousands of students all across the country who are are in that kind of a situation yeah. so I think what we're talking about right now is a more quote challenged yes but typical situation where there are some remedies available at least temporarily you know that this is temporary that's the way I look at it. it's temporary um, is there a loss of learning yes um, it cannot be avoided and everybody's scrambling to do the best they can possibly do within such a difficult situation I, I, so. I, I, I want to I want to underline and underscore that because I think that's really important for for parents to just accept and recognize a mm-hmm. it is a temporary situation B you got to do the very best that you can and then let it go because yes you can't feel guilty you can't you can't allow yourself to get depressed about it or over 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 worried about it do the very best that you can and then move on because yeah and, and to tell parents to tell parents Look, we all know, none of us caused this. This is not something that was manufactured here or in the United States or was created. We are the recipient of something that took our daily routine, our own control over our own lives out of our hands. And so we are responding as a country and as communities to a situation that certainly none of us ever asked for, and we didn't want to have our children in this situation but here we are and and so i i think in order for parents to say i don't really need to feel guilty about this (laughs) i mean no one's celebrating it but it's also everyone doing the best they can with you know the circumstance with what what it has been 
the hand that's been dealt us is what my mother would say. <laughs> I love that. That is so accurate. Um, um, I, I want to go ahead, Barbara. I wanted to, um, I was just looking through my notes really quickly to see there was one other thing I want, we were going to talk about, and maybe it was not I, just I, distance learning, screen right. time maybe, but go I, ahead. Well, the thing that's really um, gotten to me in, in this whole situation is we, when we're talking about brain development in teens, um, mm-hmm. can you talk about the physical changes that are happening? I mean, we talked a little bit about what that looks like um, with the division. Uh, I'm, I'm looking back over my notes as well here. It says um, I'm pulling a blank. I know that what can parents do to really help their kids in with this brain development thing? Is there, are there any, I know you said that you had the booklet and I shared that booklet, um, on, um, activities that parents can do with brain development or is there anything particular that they can do with teens? Are there anything that teens can do to help their own brain development? You know, I, I, those are really two good questions. And in terms of, you know, parents and parenting through teenagehood, I, you know, I think we've just discussed quite a bit of what parents can do, you know, what they can look out, you know, sort of the pitfalls of things that you want to avoid. You don't want to be overprotective or controlling. At the same time, they're not adults and they cannot fully make their own decisions. You can guide those decisions and help them come to conclusions. Um, I would definitely, as much as possible, you know, offer uh, teens as many uh, productive, positive interactions plus activities and then let them choose where they have the greatest affinity, you know, towards something. Like, um, not every one of our kiddos is Einstein or Mozart or Picasso. Um, as much as we all think that they are all those <laughs> But there's nothing wrong with letting them explore in all of those areas, you know, music, art, sports, etc., and let them have a taste. But I think ultimately over time, even little ones will tell you this when you, you're interacting with your you know, younger children, and then especially, I think, through the teens, is that um, when they they are they will tell you, you know, quote, it's just not my thing. <laughs> well, and I think that's important when we're talking about identity because so many times, yes, I mean, right here, we're, this is the age where kids are looking for that group to belong with. They're looking for that 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 niche where they fit. And I think giving them the opportunity to explore all the various niches and, you know, kind of find out where they fit, where they're comfortable um, is an important part of mentoring teenagers. Yes, it is. And, and I think that, um, again, going back and for a parent to find the balance, you know, we all have good days and bad days. And there are going to be days that we have great 
interaction and exchanges and communication with our uh, adolescent children, and there are going to be days when we both kind of both sit in the corner and go, oh, my God, day, you know, <laughs> day wasn't so successful, you know, and that's okay because it's part of the learning process. Experiences like that are just as beneficial to your team as experiences that you would identify or define or, or look back on and say, gee, that was such a positive day. Because what we're preparing that team for as, you know, they're maturing uh, through up into the 25 to 27-year-old brain is this is the time when the brain develops executive function. It's developing working memory. It's developing decision-making processes. It's organizing, planning, and, and preparing to take on the responsibilities of adulthood by experiencing what those challenges are as they're maturing through teenagehood up to the, quote, last phase of brain development, which is 25 to 27 years old. And, and I think that's an interesting time because most parents, we talk about Mythbusters, right? Most parents um, think, well, gee, if there's such an emphasis on the early childhood part of development, which there should be, mm-hmm. you know, but, but often we've heard in the past that, you know, well, if I don't get this done by zero to four, zero to five, you know, I've lost the window of opportunity or my child has lost the window of opportunity. No, because the brain is continuing to mature up until the age of 25, 27, and continues on through, you know, adulthood. But somewhere between, I'd say, 25 to 30, um, I'm always generous with... Mm-hmm. Um, we all develop That's exactly right. I mean, it, you cannot say brains don't work like a clock where, oh... 27th birthday we're done I'm cooked no <laughs> you know the development phase continues but that last phase is really about um, where the prefrontal cortex does develop the last phase of mature thinking and then the experiences help augment that thinking process in other words we're gearing up to uh, I would say train and lo- use that word loosely, parents, the next generation of CEOs who are just going to knock everybody's socks off by the time they turn 30. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kathleen, what is detrimental to the teen brain? Um, we had Dr. Uh, Danny Coates talk, come and talk about uh, he he doesn't like uh, what he calls shoot 'em up games. He said that those yeah. are detrimental to the brain. Are there any other things that are detrimental to brain development in, in adolescence and early twenties brains? Yes, yes. Um, you know his work is wonderful, and I agree probably with about ninety percent or more really of of what he has discovered and and the training that he does. Um, absolutely agree. He talks about screen time um, and talks about, you know, the influence of games, especially the negative destructive games on the brain 
and and what happens and what can happen. I would take that one step further. Okay. Um, I would say it's not it's not only the negative games; it's the amount of screen time itself. Whether they're on social media, whether they're on the computer, this gets into the distance learning um, aspect of what we're living through. Whether it's screen time in movies, et cetera, et cetera. What's happening is all of that screen time, eyeballs on screens, is preventing the child, the adolescent, from developing, literally developing physically, emotionally, intellectually, and I would say um, comprehensively, holistically. What is really key in this phase of development is that in-person, face-to-face exchange with the peers, with their teachers, with their parents, with extended family, out in the community, you know, whether it's, you know, church or sports or wherever the, the individuals, you know, the adolescents are interacting, those are much more important than sitting in front of a screen. And unfortunately, what we, what we see happen, I mean, we're, we all have been victims of this or watched it um, with the advent of technology that's ubiquitous in the culture now worldwide is that our young people are not engaging with each other. Look at the level of language. Look at the content of the language itself in exchanges, even in classrooms. Look at what teachers now are asked to allow students the type of writing. Um, And the writing skills have dipped uh, oh my goodness! You know, well, tremendously I mean, over the past ten years, and and it's it's not been this amount of screen time that kids are engaged with. Like I said, eyeballs to screen. It is not healthy. Does that mean take everything away? And no, that's unrealistic. But does it mean that during adolescence that parents should be really paying attention not only to the content? about, you know, whether it's a war game, et cetera, et cetera, but the amount of time that their child is not involved with another or another individual or groups of individuals. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I, I, I kind of thought that, um, and in my research on brain development, I thought that that was important, but now I really feel like, um, with what you just said, it's all the more important that, teens be involved in real life and not what's happening on the screen as much. Um, And even going down to the point where kids, some kids are writing papers and instead of using full language, they're using text language in their papers. Exactly. You need to be able to recognize the difference. What you write in a text to your friends is not what you write on paper when you're doing a report. And they need to understand that difference. And I feel like we as a society are somehow not teaching our children these things. You know, as a black person, my mother used to tell me all the time, 
how you talk outside to your friends is not how you talk in the classroom. You can't use that same language. It's not appropriate. You know, and so I, I think that now every parent needs to talk to their kids about how you talk to your friends and how you text is not the same way that you write or that you communicate in the larger world because it's not, you know, you don't get to use emojis in life. You know, when you're writing a paper, That's right. when you're writing a report, you know, an emoji is not going to work. Right. Right. Well, and also, you know, there's, a, um, I guess, the definition, of you, they'll say, well, you know, we're teaching our children formal writing as opposed to vernacular or daily expression. Well, literally, if that's true, then to say to teenagers, there are different forms of expression. There's different ways of communicating. When you're in this environment, here's what's expected, and here's what you do, and here's how you do it. So they have to be literally taught how to write, that's, which is good. That's a good, you know, that's a wonderful aspect of literature. Um, and I'm thinking of middle school and high school students who must engage in that kind of communication exchange for formal writing, for writing reports, for research papers. And then there's the quote, we, you know, my old world, say the vernacular of how we talk to one another, say, okay, how you express yourself with adults may be different than how you express yourself with friends. And then to recognize the difference, like you said, these little, you know, three-letter words that you use in a text, like LOL, you know, that's okay for texting or social media, but you cannot um, shorten the, quote, academic language that's required at the college level or out in the business world. So I think it's really important that kids are taught those distinctions. And I would say starting in middle school, you know, the ages 13, 12, 13 is a good time to start. I'd say right. probably 10 or 12. About 12 was, would yeah, be a good I, time to start. I, I see where you're coming from. Um, Kathleen, is there anything we haven't touched on that you really feel like parents of uh, teens and 20s need to know about brain development um, that will help them um, engage with their children in a positive way? Um, I think we have covered, you know, quite a bit of territory in today's conversation. Right, yeah, and, we have. You know, I, I think that the takeaways are for every parent that's listening, um, first of all, thank you for, you know, being with us today. But secondly, just quote summarize, around the age of 11 to 13, let's just say that range in there, around 11, as puberty begins, and with some kids it's earlier, the brain goes into phase two development and they're moving into the ability to begin to think, to think critically, and they're going to make a lot of mistakes. On top of that, the hormones are just going raging wild, um, which is a physical development as well as the brain development. The brain is pruning away, getting rid of things that no longer needed um, 
when you know during childhood and t- and making new neural connections for thinking for for memory for working memory for long-term memory for executive function decision making and that you're there as their parent you know um, keep the environment stable predictable consistent but you're there as a guide and as a mentor you're not their best friend but you know to help them get through this phase because the way you could visualize it is inside that child it feels very much out of control and the control and I'm you know is what your environment provides to help child move into the third phase of development with their brain and launch into you know the real world of society so to backtrack really quickly when you think about the younger ages of two three four and five now you're repeating it um, and at 12 13 14 15 and sometimes it's a little bit more challenging than <laughs> <I remember. laughs> oh, goodness. So, yeah Kathleen, thank you so much. This has been so valuable. I think parents uh, are going to get a lot of information out of here and, and a lot of things to think about. So I really appreciate your coming and uh, chatting with us about this. I think of all of our conversations, this has probably been the most impactful on me in, in thinking about how um, teens are changing and not mm-hmm. just physically, but mentally and, you know, in every area of their lives, and no wonder they feel unstable and no wonder they're a little crazy. Yes, yes. And it's probably a a good way to think about it is, you know, my child's gone, quote, a little bit crazy, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all. It means that they are exploding inside in very creative ways, in very positive ways. This is not a negative phase. This is just astounding. And the fact that we are there with them on their journey is a real gift. Oh, I love that. I think that's a great place to end this. So thank you so much for listening to the Let's Talk Parenting Podcast. I've been talking to Kathleen Leos, the founder and uh, creator of Education Neuroscience Foundation. Thank you so much for listening, and we really appreciate you. Um, Kathleen, will you please share your uh, contact information should parents want to contact you or check out the foundation? Sure. Um, You can reach me directly, uh, Kathleen Leos, and I'll give you my phone number, uh, 202-731-0391. Um, leave me a message and someone will be in touch with you very shortly. Um, or you can go to the website www.edu-neuroscience.com and that long word is spelled E-D-U-N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com. Thank you, Kathleen. Everybody, have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll see you on the next podcast where we will be talking to Kathleen one last time, and we'll be talking about 
myths around brain development. So thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.